middle schoolers with that. You don't have to go, but you've got to get on out of here. So, uh, no, our middle school group meets at this time. Jake Schwab's in the back, so we're dismissing you all to go have a good time with it. That was our Believe event. The Move event is for high school students. It's a week long. We're going to be taking students to Holland, Michigan later in June, 1st of July. Uh, there's more information about that in the bulletin. Yesterday was a first for me. Uh, it kicked off a new experience in my life and for my family, but particularly for me and my son, Joel, and that was the start of T-ball season. And I'm the head coach. I signed up to be a volunteer and got an email that said, hey, congratulations, you're the coach. We do that to some of you sometimes as volunteers, don't we? And uh, so anyway, uh, yesterday was the, was the start of the t-ball season, and it's pretty interesting. It really is. It's a lot of fun playing uh, t-ball with five-year-olds and the actual first game. Some kids play in the dirt. Some kids just look dazed and look all around and do circles on the field. And some kids are really into it, and they're really good, like my kid. You know, and he's real focused on it and, and everything. And, but it's a good time. But uh, it's kind of like herding cats, you know, as someone once said, you know, just trying to keep all the kids within the fence and, you know, so that they don't stray around. It's this organized chaos, and, uh, but, but definitely a good time. And I kind of feel like this marriage series has been the experience, for me at least, is kind of like organized chaos. And a couple of months ago, as I was doing some planning ahead and, and looking at some of the series that I wanted to do, I really felt like God laid this series on my heart. And as I talked about with you last week, this is my first time to do a marriage series. And I've been married for almost 11 years, so I've got that going for me, and, uh, and, and that's good. But, but to really dive into this series has, has been a bit of a challenge. And, and I understand that maybe for some of of you, it's even a challenge to talk about some of the things that we're going to talk about. Um, as I was thinking about this, I could do one of two things, you know, as your pastor and as your preacher. Um, I could tell you the things that you want to hear. Uh, we, we could just talk about all of the good things, and there are so many good things about being a follower of Jesus Christ. And we could just talk about that. But I feel like we've got to talk about some of the tough stuff, too. Because if we're not going to talk about it, then who's going to talk about it? And, uh, and so in this series, you know, we're kind of taking off the gloves a little bit, and we're talking about some real issues, and we're talking about some real things, and, and especially today. And, and here's my greatest fear. Here's my greatest burden as we go in this, that, that you kind of get frightened off by it and that you wouldn't come back. I mean, that, that would pain me for something like that to happen. Or for you to feel like we're calling somebody out or we're trying to create a, you know, this place of shame and of guilt because that is not it at all whatsoever. I mean, our greatest message that we proclaim here is that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that he, ha- he, is, he was resurrected, that he lives today, and his love extends to anyone who will receive that love and receive that grace and receive that forgiveness. But I also believe we've got to talk about some, some, some things that the Bible's very clear about. You know, there are warnings that God has given to us. We can be thankful for these verses of warning. You know, uh, you know the Bible says that the Bible is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. His second Timothy said that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correcting and training and, and rebuking, you know, and training us up for righteousness. And, and so that's where we're going to go today, especially as we talk about this subject. And, and hang with us. You know, because, you know, this is a great series. I'm very excited about the next three weeks and next week especially. I really feel like we're going to talk about, start looking at the great part of marriage and and this love affair that God wants for every marriage. God's design for marriage and how wonderful and how awesome it can be. Um, And with that, let me pray as we get started. God, I just want to thank you for this time today. And I want to thank you for, for all of my friends, God, and that we can come into this room and that we can worship and we can read from your word together. Um, God, I pray that the message that you want to communicate today is the loudest, Lord. 
And I pray that my words are anointed by you. And and if for any chance or for any reason a little bit of Paul tries to get ahead of you, God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would would be the voice that gets a hold of our hearts this morning. Uh, And it can convict us. It can heal us. It can give us hope. Um, It can help us to see Jesus and how awesome his death was, how awesome his forgiveness is, Lord. And I pray that we'd be able to experience that today in Jesus' name. Amen. A recent report suggests that 80% of all marriages will deal with an affair of some kind. And so today we're going to look at this story. We're going to go straight to the scripture and we're going to look at the story of one of the most talked about affairs of all time, the affair between David and Bathsheba. The Bible tells us that David was a man after God's own heart that he loved God. No one of us, none of us will ever love God as much as David loved God. But David, being a human just like you and me, was overcome by temptation. He was pushed to this ledge in his life, this ledge of compromise, and because he wasn't paying attention, he fell. I mean, he stumbled and he stumbled in a big way. And his life suffered because of it, his family suffered. And my hope is that as we tackle this, this story today, as we look at this story together, that we can learn from his mistake and maybe even change the course for some of our own lives. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, that's where we're going to begin today. Uh, I realize it's kind of a a tough place to find in the Bible. It's kind of in the first third of the Old Testament. Uh, But 2 Samuel, beginning in chapter 11, we're going to spend a little time in here, so don't lose your place, and we've got the scripture available for you on the screen too. But 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Have I stalled long enough to give you a time to get there? Who's there? We got any people there yet? We got any sword drill champs? All right, Cindy Johnson up front. She's got it. Let's give her a big hand. She was first today. So am I embarrassing you? Okay, good. All right. Second, I won't do it again. That's it. Second Samuel 11, verse 1. Here we go. In the spring, and we love springtime, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, David, again, was a man after God's own heart. He loved God. And by the time we pick up with David here in 2 Samuel, he's on a roll. I mean, things are going well for this guy. He was the national hero. All right, he won every battle that he fought. He established Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel. He was a world-renowned writer, uh, having written many of the Psalms. David was the man, and his face was all over the cover of every chic magazine in the Mideast at this time. Here is the guy. This is David, a man with all of the blessings, a man who didn't need a thing, a a man after God's own heart, but on the verge of making the worst mistake in his entire life. I mean, he's contemplating an affair. He's contemplating sexual sin. Something that would ruin his life, mess he and his family up for years to come. I don't really think that at this moment, David knew what was at stake. I I don't think he knew how great of a mistake he was about to make, what pain he was inviting into his life. And you and I are the same way. You know, sometimes we fail to see it. We, we, we face sin all the time, and it's almost like at times we go unconscious to the, to the possibilities of the consequences. Because hear this, sin carries consequences. It does. We're, we're not free from them. Our choices carry consequences, and sexual sin carries even great consequences. Now notice here in verse 1 that David's at home. 
All right, he's in bed while everyone else is off at war. He must have had some sick days coming or something, so he decided to stay home while everyone's at war. I mean, he's the king. He can do whatever he wants. Big deal, right? No, he should have been out on the field. That's what a king did in this age. This is what David was known for. He should have been at war with everyone else. And think about it. If he would have been where he was supposed to be, this whole David and Bathsheba thing would have never happened. And you know, it's interesting when I, when I think about my life or, or maybe when you think about your life that some of our greatest battles with temptation come when we find ourselves in places where we shouldn't be. You know, maybe it's the wrong channel or the wrong website or an inappropriate relationship. And like David, we get, we get pushed onto the ledge and the edge in our life and we, we don't even see it coming and we start walking this fine line of compromise And the problem with walking on the ledge is this. If you walk there long enough, eventually you will fall. Verse 2. One evening David got up from his bed and he walked around the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a beautiful woman bathing. A, A woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now remember, he should have been at war. Now we don't know what's going on here, why he wasn't at war. It could have been pride. You know, maybe David felt, hey, we've won enough battles. We've got it all together. No one can defeat us. I don't need to be there. I'll stay home. You know, why waste time on the battlefield when I can be at home in bed? And sometimes pride leads to boredom. And so maybe David was bored, but he couldn't sleep. You know, he couldn't sleep. He didn't have any more Ambien in the drawer. You know, so he couldn't sleep. And so he goes up to the roof. You know, and this wasn't too uncommon. The buildings during this time had flat roofs. And so David went up onto the top of his palace. He's out on this flat roof, and and maybe it's just a gorgeous night, or maybe it was cooler outside than it was inside. Maybe he went out onto the roof to look out over the city and see everything that he had accomplished. Wow, look how well I'm doing. Look how great it's going for me. And it didn't take long before he noticed he was across the way. And the Bible says that he saw a very beautiful woman having this Calgon moment of her own. And no one was around, and he was, a vul- he was vulnerable, and he just watched. And unfortunately, he didn't look just once. Because it's not the first look that always gets us in trouble, especially if it's an accident. It's the second, and it's the third look that can take you down. And so David is standing on this ledge, doing everything that he can to get the very best look. And in this moment, as he's overcome by lust, now what's lust? Lust is a God-given desire gone haywire. So he's out of control. This lust has pushed him from the center of the roof to the ledge where he can get the very best view. And now he's balancing this fine line here. I mean, he should have run. You know, at that moment, he should have just run, gone back down the stairs, taken a cold shower, and gone back to bed or something, all right? But he didn't. He's out here on the roof. And the Bible says that you and I, that we are to flee sexual immorality. Now, the word flee means flee. It means to run. It means to get out of there as quickly as possible, We are to flee sexual morality, but David refused to think about what was happening. Verse 3, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, David knew what was up, and unfortunately for David, his servant did too. And his servant almost kind of gave this warning in his response of, dude, she's married, all right? She's married to Uriah, one of your soldiers, but at this point for David, it didn't matter. Verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. And right here is where we see the downfall. You know, he's out on the ledge. He, he just slipped. 
And now he's preparing to step over the edge. And, and I wonder for David how many times he later thought back to this moment and thought about, if, you know, if I could just go back to that moment and make the right decision, the better decision. But he didn't. You know, I was laying in bed last night with the windows open, and I was reminded of the time when I was a little kid, and we lived next door to these people who had a swimming pool, and they had one of those bug zappers. You know what I'm talking about? The, the big, bright blue light, and, you know, the, you, you could hear it. You could hear it buzzing, and then in the middle of the night, you hear zap. And you'd think that bugs would figure it out eventually, you know, that, like, that mom would figure out that her son didn't come home for whatever reason and kind of communicate this to the rest of the buglings, but, but it doesn't happen. They, they see the blue light and they're just, they're kind of drawn in by the trance. Or, or you think all of the dead bugs at the bottom of the tray would tip the bug off eventually, but it doesn't happen. And the same thing kind of happens with sexual sin too. You know, we've, we've seen people in our life who have fallen, who have made mistakes, and, and, and the pain and, and, and the crippling effect that it can have on lives and marriages, but we're just kind of drawn in like bugs. And surely David had seen the sexual mess, too, of other people. You know, don't do it, David. You know, don't, don't sin for Bathsheba. You're going to mess up your life. I mean, David had everything he needed. He had power and riches and control and success and a family. And what's he doing here? I mean, a man after God's own heart. What's he doing on the ledge like this, compromising his values, about to give in to temptation? He's about to go over the ledge. And in the second half of verse 4, he finally does because it says that she came to him and he slept with her. I mean, he had sex, and just like that, David slept in the wrong bed. He sinned, he broke his covenant before God, he took a leap off of the ledge and the edge of morality, he, he compromised his own values, he, he gave into temptation. And when you think about it, it's difficult to walk the ledge, and not fall. I mean, like David, for you and me, if you hang out around the ledge long enough, you're going to slip and fall. I mean, you take your marriage for granted long enough and you're bound to slip. You spend enough time with someone other than your spouse, especially if there's an attraction and you're playing with fire. If you mess around with pornography, it will mess with you. Sexual sin is dangerous. It's almost like there's a different level to it. And if you're not careful, and if you don't watch your step, like David, it can ruin you. And so David and Bathsheba had sex together, and several days later, Bathsheba stopped by the Dollar General, and she went and she picked up one of those pregnancy tests, and she checks it, oh my. So she sends David a text. All it says is, I'm pregnant, Bathsheba, yikes, okay? Can you imagine what th went through David's mind at that moment? Because now he's got a problem. Well, can you imagine his response? Well, here, what would you think he would do? I mean, a man after God's own heart, you know, you think he would own up to his mistake. You think he would come clean in this moment, that he would confess what's happened, and then he would do the right thing. All right, he's a man after God's own heart, but he doesn't do that. He, he doesn't do the right thing. Instead, David starts this intricate cover-up. He, he says to himself, you know what, I've got it. I, I've got a plan. I, I know how I can put this whole thing to rest. I'll call her husband, Uriah, home from the battlefield. I'll ask him to come back with, with a special message or an update of sorts. And then I'll send him to his house and let him spend the night with his wife. And then he'll never know. He'll just think it's his baby. Verse 8, he said to him upon returning, he called him back from the battlefield. 
Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift was sent after him. So it's like, Uriah, glad you're back. Go see your wife. Yeah, just go home for a little bit. Go spend the evening at home. Come back, we can talk later. I mean, Uriah had not seen his wife in weeks. And so David sends him home and tells him, wash your feet, which sounds a little odd. But what he's saying is here is just get comfortable. You know, go home and plan on staying for a little while. Enjoy yourself. Spend, the, spend your evening with your wife. It also says that he sent a gift with him. Now, we don't know what this is exactly, but most likely he sent choice food from the king's table or he sent wine. Regardless, he just sent him home and told him, go enjoy the evening. Well, unfortunately for David, and as verse 9 explains, Uriah didn't go home. And being a noble, honorable man of integrity, Uriah instead slept on the porch of the king's palace. I mean, he never even thought twice about going home. I mean, the irony of what's happening here, the irony between the character of David in this moment and the character of Uriah is is just so thick. I mean, Uriah couldn't imagine spending an evening with his wife while his comrades were off fighting on the field. And this kind of ticked David off. And so the next day he got together with Uriah again and he got him drunk and then he tried to send him home. But again, Uriah just stumbled on the porch of the palace and he spent the night there. And so David's got a problem. And in this moment, he's growing more and more anxious, and his plan to cover up this mistake isn't working. And it's at this point that David did something that we're all capable of. You know, it's like this. We, we sin, and we try to cover it up. And rather than come clean and confess, we take whatever steps are necessary to erase our tracks. And when it doesn't work or we slip again, we, we work harder to cover it up even more. Sexual sin will cause you to do these kinds of things. It will cause you to do things that you would never have imagined doing. Decisions that you never would have thought about making. And that's what's happening here to David. David sinned. He he had sex outside of marriage. He violated his covenant before God. And in fear of being found out, he sunk to an unthinkable level. He's actually going to have Uriah killed. And that's what he did. I mean, David could. He was the king. And so he sent a note back with Uriah to be delivered to the commander, Joab. Joab opened the note. All it said was this, put Uriah up at the very front of the battle line. When the fighting begins, pull back from him and let him be killed. A man after God's heart, but a human like you and me. Overcome with lust, pushed to the ledge by temptation, The affair, a murder, the cover-up, and now David is deep in sin, and how could he ever come clean? The Bible tells us that David took Bathsheba to be his wife. They had this baby together, and David kept his secret a secret for almost a year. One year. You know, a few people knew, but David wouldn't acknowledge it. He wouldn't confess it. David knew And he knew that God knew, but he wouldn't come clean. And words uncovered after the fact reveal what was really happening in David's life during this time of secrecy. It was painful. I mean, it it tore him apart. It, It was ruining him. It ripped his relationship with God apart. His secret turned to pain and it turned to guilt and to regret. I mean, you don't take care of wound and it's going to become infected and become an even greater problem. And that's what happened here. David wrote these words in Psalm chapter 32, verses 3 and 4, as he reflected 
on this year of silence. He writes, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was zapped, or was sapped as in the heat of summer. And maybe some of you are here this morning and you can relate with this pain. I mean, you were unfaithful and you remember that time of regret. You remember your secret. You remember what carrying that guilt was all about, that pain and that regret. And every day you think, if I could only rewind time, if I could only go back to that place and just make the right decision, then I would have been able to avoid all of this. But unfortunately for you, you slipped and you fell. You know, you, you slept in the wrong bed and, and one day you were found out and the aftershocks shocks have ripped into your family and ripped into your life and, and you're working through it and, it and it tore you to pieces and the, the pain is still there. Or maybe you're on the ledge this morning and you haven't fallen yet, thankfully. But you're cultivating the relationship. You're comparing the person with your spouse. And the next step is to do physically what you've been doing emotionally and mentally. David, a man after God's own heart, but a human like us, was imprisoned by the pain and the regret, and it carried with him every day. He should have backed away from the ledge, but he didn't. And if you're at the ledge right now, maybe it's not too late for you. And so the question kind of becomes this, how do we avoid this? How do we avoid making the same mistake? You know, the, the cheating, the, the breaking of the marriage covenant, the, the sparing ourselves from the pain and the suffering that go with it. Because here's the thing, people don't just wake up one morning and say, you know what, I'm going to have an affair today. Yep, you know, I've got nothing better to do, so, you know, I'm going to have an affair today. It doesn't happen like that. You know, we, we, you know I, I don't, we don't wish that pain and that turbulence into our life. It doesn't happen that way. It, it's gradual. It, it's when life picks up. It's when, you know, the marriage fire dies off. It's when work gets really crazy. It's when you get lazy and find yourself in a vulnerable situation like David. And as this marital drift takes place in your life, you find yourself more naturally and easily pushed to the ledge and the edge. How are you doing right now? I mean, guys, how are you doing? Are you being faithful? Where are you right now? Ladies, are... Are your relationships pure with other men? Are you where you're supposed to be? You know, are, are you working on your marriage? Are you working to make your marriage the best that it can be, even when it's tough? Or are you standing on the ledge? Because here's what I believe. That some of you are standing on the ledge right now. You're, you're standing right there and... You couldn't be any closer to the ledge and you're kind of trying to tightrope the ledge. You've even got one leg just kind of dangling off of it. How close can you get? You know, you're caught up into the movie channels. You're caught up into messing around on the internet or, or you've got a friend and she's good looking and you talk to her at the club every day and it all seems innocent and you won't get caught. You can't stumble. You won't fall, but you are so close. You are so close to sexual sin. You are so close to inviting marital unfaithfulness into your life. And so I'm just wondering if there's something here in these verses that, that can help us avoid it. If there are some words of truth that will help us to just back away from the ledge today. I mean, what is it that we can learn from David's mistake that might help us in our own life? Look again, if you would, to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, the last half of verse 27. It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
you know, the way that we live our life, our actions, our choices, our obedience, it's all for God. I mean, the way that we are supposed to live is all for God. It's about our personal relationship with God. It's not about what you need. It's not about what I need. It's not about you and me. It's, about, it's not about what we think we need. It's not about, you know, I'm not, you know, I, you know, I'm not getting any love in it at home. It doesn't matter. It's about God. It's about our relationship with him. Because while God is a great God and while God is a God of love and of mercy, a God who sent his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for every single one of us, to wash away sin as white as snow, God hates sin. He hates it. He can't stand it. He despises it. It makes him angry. He hates unfaithfulness. I believe that he is angry, very angry, over the sexual sin in our world today. He is a just God, and he's a God who tells us that will hold us accountable for the sexual sin in our life. And when that day of judgment comes, if Jesus is not standing there with you, then you're going to be held accountable for the sin. Otherwise, it goes to Jesus. It goes to the cross. But he's going to hold this sin accountable. You know, why does it make him so angry? Here's why. This is the best part of it all. Because God wants the very best for us. Do you know that? God wants the very best for your life. He he has prescribed the very best. He's got the very best in mind for our lives and for our marriages and for our church. He is a God of love. He is a God of grace and he's a God of mercy. And that's what I allow to try and motivate me. You know, when when Jenny and I have been married for almost 11 years now and, and we've been faithful to one another for those 11 years, you know, does it mean that I've never lusted? You know, I wish that I could tell you that I hadn't. But fortunately, I've been able to stay away from the ledge. I've been able to create some boundaries in my life that protect me and protect our marriage. And if you could ask me why, I could give you a number of reasons, but the greatest is that I want my life to be all for God. You know, why do we make bad sexual decisions? Well, culture pushes us that way. I mean, it's okay. I mean, think about what we watch on TV. Think about the movies. You know, I was just thinking about one of the movies that I saw with my wife, the movie The Notebook. Okay, and I don't mean to call a movie out, but I'm going to. I mean, we, we, we get our minds and our hearts around what we call this great love story, but when it comes down to it, it's sexual sin. It's about an affair that takes place. I mean, we've got to be motivated to live right for God because of his relentless love for us. And I know that God loves me, and I know that he loves my wife more than I can explain, and he's faithful to us, and we know and he, we believe that he has a purpose for us. He put us together. He blesses us. And we're under his authority. And and I'm under his authority today. And and why would I want to step out from the umbrella of his authority when I know that I'll get hammered by doing so? You know, I'd invite a bunch of pain into my life. And if you don't believe me, test God on this. I mean, jump in the wrong bed. I mean, if you want to leap off of the ledge and move out from under God's protection and his purpose for your life, go for it. I mean, you've got that freedom to make your own choices. But as we see in David... In doing so, you're really going to mess your relationship with God up. And I don't know why we would want that. Why would we want that? I mean, it's all for him. Our lives are to be all about him. It's obedience. It's trust. God wants the very best for us. And so we need to back off from the ledge and acknowledge that it's all for God. Our lives are a living sacrifice. It's all for God. How else can we back off from the ledge? I like this one. I think this is... I really challenge you to think about this one, but borrow pain from the future. Borrow pain from the future. Verse 10, after David was found out, it says, Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, David, 
because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Basically, David, your life is about to get crazy. What happened? Let me just give you the details of what happened in David's life over the years to come. First, David and Bathsheba's baby, the one that was conceived, it died, unfortunately. In this particular situation, the baby died, and it was very unfortunate. Amnon, one of David's sons, raped his own half-sister, Tamar. Another of David's sons, Absalom, took revenge and killed Amnon. Then Absalom tried to kill David. David and Bathsheba eventually had another son and named him Solomon. And Solomon was one of the wisest and wealthiest men who ever lived. But he had some weaknesses. He had some weaknesses when it came to money, and he had some weaknesses when it came to women, especially in the area of immorality. Where did, David, where, where did Solomon learn them? He learned them from his dad. And over time, this kingdom of Israel split into two. You know, this great kingdom that David had brought together and unified, it split in two right down the middle, and there were civil wars. And it's interesting that adultery splits our kingdoms too. It breaks up homes. And then the attorneys are called to pick up the pieces. And David endured the consequences of his sin for the rest of his life because sin has consequences. Now, maybe that's where you stop and even take a chance on checking out and say, well, wait a second. I thought God was a good God. I thought God was a loving God. I thought God was a forgiving God. Why does sin have consequences? Let me give you this illustration. Suppose after the service today, I make a run in my vehicle down to the local convenience store and decide to rob it for whatever reason. I rob the convenience store, and later on this afternoon, I get picked up. You get an email later, and you're probably thinking, really? Seriously? Like, our pastor, he robbed a convenience store? Like, what, what got into him? You know, I mean, if he needed a few bucks, we could have given him a few bucks. He robbed the convenience store. So I end up, you know, in the Pendleton Penitentiary for 20 years, and a couple of days in, I fall to my knees. And I confess before God my sin, and I'm genuine in that confession, and I invite God to forgive me for what I've done. Guess what? The greatest part of it all is that God forgives me. Instant forgiveness. Sins washed away white as snow. Does God show up later on to break me out of prison? Absolutely not. We can be forgiven. But sometimes we have to endure our our sin. We've got to endure the consequences. There are consequences that come with our choices. What does it mean to borrow pain from the future? If you're on the ledge and you're thinking of jumping into an affair, do me a favor. Take the time to sit down and write out the rest of your story, just like David's. I mean, what will this do to your life and your family? Write out your story in your mind. I've done it, and I can't bear to think about it. I mean, I can't imagine facing my wife with the news. I can't imagine looking into any of your eyes and explaining what happened. I can't imagine looking into the eyes of Joel and Luke and Kate and telling them that their daddy is not going to live at home anymore. I mean, borrow pain from the future and see what you're getting out of it. And if you're standing on the ledge and you're contemplating doing the David and Bathsheba thing, then stop. I mean, think twice about it. I mean, if you're one step away from inviting all of this pain into your life, into your home, step away from the ledge. It's not about us. And the few minutes of pleasure are not worth it. It's not what we want. It's what God wants for us. And the last thing that I think we can take from these words is just, it's simple. It's simple. It's kind of like Dr. Laura Schlesinger to the max. Tough name to say. There's nothing profound about it. It's just straight to the point. 
If you're standing on the ledge right now in your life, you're bordering compromise, back off from the ledge. Just get away and leave the ledge immediately. I mean, if you're thinking about doing something stupid, you know, maybe it's the coworker or the guy from the spinning class or it's a family friend or it's the old fling from high school or maybe even someone from the church and the offer's there and you've done a lot in your mind mentally and emotionally and that's frightening and dangerous enough. But fortunately, in your situation, it hasn't gotten physical yet, but you're balancing the line. You haven't gone over the edge. If this is you, here's what you need to do. Leave the ledge immediately. You know, end the relationship now. Back away altogether, cut it off immediately, get rid of your internet, you know, cut off the cable. In the process of backing away from the ledge, get some help. Find someone in your life that you can talk to. Find a, find a Christian friend, someone of the same sex that you can sit down with and, and confidentially share some of the things that you're going through in your life right now. Talk to a counselor. Pray. Go running after God. Pray and ask him to give you the strength you need to protect you and to heal you. And if you do this, I promise you that God will give you the strength. I promise you that he will give you the power. I promise you that he will bless you and that he can even heal your marriage. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 10, and I'll just read this one for you. The writer of these Proverbs, he says it like this. He's talking about how to live life. Listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. I guide you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Don't let it go. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evil. The path of righteousness is like the first gleam of dawn, shining even brighter to the full light of day. Friends, our lives as living sacrifices is all about God. It's about putting him first. And if you need to leave the ledge this morning, then you need to leave the ledge. Back away from it. You know, and and seek a love affair with no one else but your spouse. It's what God has designed. It's what God has intended for your marriage. I wish I had time to tell you the rest of the story. As we already talked about, the sword never left David's house. The consequences endured throughout his lifetime, and to a certain degree, I think some of the consequences are still being endured even in the Middle East right now. Sin has great consequences. And David hung on to this sin for a year until he was confronted by a close friend, a man of God by the name of Nathan. And Nathan knew the whole story. He knew every bit of it. And when David discovered that he was found out, he broke. I mean, he crumbled in a moment. He broke and all the pain and all the regret and all the suffering came out of him and he fell on his face before God and he confessed and he repented and it was genuine confession. Take time, if you haven't read it before, to read Psalm 51 this week. Psalm 51, it's the story of David's heart being poured out as he experienced God's forgiveness and God's restoration in his life. And David wrote these words after confessing his sin to God. Because here's the best news of the whole story. God forgave David. God always forgives, and I promise you that he will forgive you too. You know, his love is great, and David's, you know, heart and his relationship with God were restored to an even greater place. And I was trying to think of a way to wrap this up this morning, 
Just a way of giving you a picture of, of what God is capable of doing even in the worst situations and how he can get into the life and he can get into the marriage of, of a broken person in a broken home and he can just do these awesome things because you might be in the middle of some junk right now and it's all found out. And maybe you're the victim even. Well, I want to leave you this morning with this story because it's a story of hope. It speaks for itself. I thought that the day my story came out, my ministry would be over. Turns out that's the day it started. Reputation was everything for me. I set out uh, to build a good reputation and to protect it, which meant that there were parts of my life that I couldn't let anybody see. There were some battles I had to fight alone. I got my first look at hardcore pornography on a seminary-sponsored trip to New York City. My wife was with me. They took us on a tour of Times Square so that we could see firsthand how women are exploited by the sex business. I was shocked by what I saw and disgusted by it. But I was also fascinated. It hit me, hooked me deep. I didn't just like porn. I became obsessed with it. And it eventually took me places I never intended to go. So before I know it, I'm a I'm a pastor, married, three kids, and I'm picking up my first hooker on my way to lead a candlelight service on Christmas Eve. I only lasted five years in the ministry. I was never caught, but I was terrified of losing my reputation. My life was out of control. I'd lost any hope that I could stop what I was doing, so I bailed on the ministry, went into business, succeeded in business. But that's about the only thing I succeeded at. Those were dark years. My life got smaller and smaller. I hated what I was doing. I remember so many times screaming at God as I pulled away from some place I shouldn't have been, banging on the steering wheel, saying, take this away. I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. He never answered that prayer. Eventually, I concluded that either he didn't care or he didn't exist. Today, I'm so glad he didn't answer that prayer. I think we're all made for intimacy. But intimacy carries its risks. People can reject us. People can disappear. They can die. Pornography offers this artificial intimacy with no risks. So every day I said hello to the, to the woman who wouldn't laugh at me or who found me attractive. 
engaging. And every day I gave a piece of myself away. It left me emptier and hungrier every time. And yet I kept coming back. I was oblivious to what it was doing to my wife until one day she caught me. I don't know how long she'd been standing there, but she was crying. And so I apologized and we talked it through and I was still afraid. A few days later, she found a, a condom on the floor in the bathroom that I couldn't quite explain. This time, she didn't cry. She sat me down on the edge of our bed and she said, I'm done. I still love you, but I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't respect you. And I don't believe you can ever change. That's what it took for me to get out of my private world. Living in the truth, walking in the light, no matter how other people might perceive it. I mean, that's, that's freedom. And to know that I'm, I don't have to perform to be accepted. I always felt bad that I wasn't a better person. I even created this false self, this Saint Nate, that I tried to make breathe on its own. I felt bad that, that Saint Nate could only live at church. Now I know that Jesus never loved Saint Nate, because he didn't make Saint Nate. He made me. Jesus loves me, wants a relationship with me. And that's the only real relationship there is. There's a tremendous liberty when you arrive in a place that's safe enough to bring your real self and say the real truth. There were men who did that for me, Christian men. And I found that I could give the same gift to another guy, sit down over a cup of coffee and just tell him my story. And even if his life is different from mine, and everybody's life is different from mine in the details, something about my story resonated with his. And so many times, by the time we finished, he'd say, well, you know, I've never told anybody this, but he got a taste of freedom too. Because of my addiction, I now understand that but only God is the center of things. He's actually used my addiction for good. Because of it, I've been forced to join the human race and surrender to a power greater than myself. God is good. God is love. And if I'll follow the path that he's laid out for me, I can live every day in the warmth of his love and I can reflect it to others. I don't think I ever really met Jesus until I stepped out of my my church persona and became just another desperate broken man. That's when he really became real to me. 
This isn't the ministry I've, I planned. <laughs> but I know it's mine. And, uh, and my wife knows it too. We're in it together. My wife will tell you today that she's been married to two guys named Nate Larkin. And as hard as those first 20 years were, she'd take him again to get the last 10. I'm Nate Larkin, and I am second. And so if you're new here today, welcome to a room of broken people uh, put back together by the grace of God. And uh, that's the message, that there is hope, that there is healing, that God puts lives back together, he puts marriages back together, he writes the end of the story, and he's the best writer of all. Uh, this morning as we wrap up our service, we're going to have a time of communion together, and there's a communion table to my left and to my right, and there's the bread and the juice, and we're just going to remember Christ's death and sacrifice today. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to take this supper with us. Uh, the bread is a symbol of the body of Christ, that his life was broken for us. The juice is a reminder of his blood and that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so Denise is going to come and she's going to sing a song about the grace and the love of God and how great it is. And when you're ready, uh, we invite you to get up from your seats and you can come to either one of these tables and take communion together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love and for your grace. And that even in our darkest days and our darkest hours, that your love and that your forgiveness is greater than it all. That you are able and willing to wash our sins as white as snow if we'll just let you. I pray that you would move us, that you would challenge us, that you would motivate us, God, to follow you, to follow Jesus, and that we can live in this grace that you have so freely given to us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.